Welcome back to another True North podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Nate Hartman again. For those of you that have continued listening to us, we, we typically just riff on topics of today that are impacting industry, governments, and education providers. And Nate, thanks for joining me. Today, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go down the, the rabbit hole of the new buzzword. And I know it's not truly a buzzword, but it, it tends to be at times artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the like. Thanks for joining me and apologize in advance for this discussion. No, Joe, thanks for being gracious enough to have me come back. Uh, as the quote goes, since we're going down the rabbit hole, we're all mad here. <laughs> so the, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Very true. We all in some way are a bit mad. Artificial intelligence. So let me just kick this off from a very simplistic Joe Anderson perspective. I think we have surpassed the, I, I understand where the fear is for future if we don't have the right protocols, but I really want to talk about what it means today and where it's come from. We've had robotics for quite a while. Mm -hmm. You know, AI, the concept really launched from a think tank over 60, 70 years ago. When I look at artificial intelligence and some of the misnomers of the types of AI and what machine learning is, what algo algorithms are, one thing I'd like to talk about in this episode is, and I don't know if, again, it's a consumer complacency or we're just so used to signing acknowledgements without actually reading them, but there's a lot of embedded AI capability in our products today. When we look mm -hmm. from a data collection and storage and utilization and the algorithms behind that from a autonomous vehicle or a, or your just standard combustion engine vehicle. We've got a lot of data embedded intelligence in those products, our phones, our watches, our computers, and all of that's being retained in order to quote unquote, give the user better experience, but yeah. it, in the wrong hands and, and time and time again, I am reminded that no organization is truly safe when it comes right. to data protection. We've seen it from the health industry, the automotive industry, the defense industry. There's nefarious individuals out there that are trying to use that data. And when we start thinking embedded AI today and its functionality, I'd like to talk about that. But I'd also talk, I'd like to talk about potential benefits from machine learning and maybe in various industries. I'm looking forward to getting your perspective, Nate. So just going to open the table up to you and then we'll just go from there. Okay. Again, recurring theme here in our podcast that these are some wide ranging, open kinds of topics. I guess maybe the first thing I would say is I think it's important to start with the idea that maybe of what we're not necessarily talking about at this point, because I think to your point about people's fears or misconceptions, concerns about this thing called artificial intelligence. We're not talking about a general global artificial intelligence that is its own sort of sentient force, like a human being, right? That's not necessarily what we're talking about. For those who are Marvel fans, right? We're not talking about Jarvis here. What we're really talking about is what's typically categorized machine learning, which is a subset of artificial intelligence. And again, not to get into some of the more academic nuances of it per se, but I think it's important to really put some boundaries around this topic. Because again, to your point, people's minds will wander. People may potentially assume the worst when in fact, 
things like this can be useful. You mentioned, Joe, the idea that there's already embedded intelligence in a lot of the products we use today. Even something as simple as someone's web browser, right? And if you link together, for example, your web browser functionality to your social media profile, to your profile on streaming media sites and so on, all of a sudden you start seeing similar advertisements, right? Showing up on all of those things, right? But those are examples of, in the background, machine learning. There are algorithms that track where you look on the web, uh, maybe the things that you buy online, the music that you might listen to, the movies that you watch, all sorts of things, even to some degree, things that you might post Correct. online. And so there are algor algorithms out there harvesting this. You mentioned for the benefit of the user experience. And generally speaking, that's probably a good way to characterize it, I think. We, they're meant to try to save us time or they're meant to try to show us things that we might like based on things that someone has assumed that we already like, <laughs> again, based on our history there. But even now, you can buy vehicles, for example, right, with lane monitoring, with even some degree of autonomous operation. In fact, I just saw a television commercial last night. I don't remember which vehicle it was, but essentially it's, it was someone sitting there with their hands off the wheel, vehicle driving down the road. Now that's not the same as trying to eat your French fries and eat right. your hamburger right. and, you know, seat. steer with your knee. Right? right. But it's a, not that any of us have ever done that, but the point is that this was like a deliberate autonomous experience. And again, there's a whole lot of technologies that go into being able to do that, but one of which is machine learning connected to cameras and sensors of various sorts that analyze road conditions, the ambient light conditions, the behavior of the driver, all of those kinds of things. Even insurance companies today offer discounts if, if you allow them periodic access to your electronic control module or water vehicle module on your engine and allow them to download and analyze that data. So what we're talking about really are things that can, you use the phrase user experience, right? I'll use a somewhat different phrase, but very similar meaning, but it is meant to augment human capacity. We all know that human attention spans can be very short, but we also know that humans can store a wealth of information. Part of the reason, excuse me, one of the reasons why people have begun to develop machine learning and apply machine learning algorithms to different situations really has been around automation of sorts. And I don't necessarily mean factory automation or mechanical automation per se. Certainly that's an example of this. Where machine learning can really help people in a working scenario is to help mate or at least help augment information processing, yeah. decision-making, differentiation between two conditions, two things, two scenarios. Human beings do have finite limits yeah. in their ability to process information. And so, unfortunately, though, that often tends to look like or tends to manifest in people's fears of uh, automation is going to take my job. It's possible, I suppose, but automation has taken human jobs throughout history. Yeah. 
every industrial revolution has dealt with some kind of automation, whether it was mechanical, electrical, whether it was cyber-physical. Human beings have always sought ways to automate labor. I think what makes people uncomfortable at times in this conversation is now one of the things that we're talking about automating now is decisions. It's We're talking about potentially automating cognition of sorts. And so anything, any process, one could argue, if it's a rules-based process, people can argue that process, that decision, that thought could arguably be automated. Correct. And that makes people nervous. Yeah. And I, you know, and I'll maybe get some examples of, of those, uh, those reactions. I'll play devil's advocate. I obviously see the benefit of automation and technology. As you said, it's been around for a long time I, and I have benefited from it, but I am one that I turn off my microphone to apps. I turn off the tracking to apps. I don't need you to store my data. I appreciate wanting to tell me when I need new toothpaste or it's I'm running out of orange juice. If I had a smart refrigerator, there are refrigerators out there now that can scan the contents of your refrigerator and inform you when you're running low. And I see the benefits. For this example, you also could store medicine in there. And do you want that data being stored and a third party responsible for the security of that? I think that's where that gray area. And then we start talking about autonomous vehicles. I always use an analogy or an example. When I get in a ride share, I'm being driven somewhere. And I have, that's a luxury. That's great. <laughs> if I'm in a city or if I'm traveling, I don't have to mess with it for multiple reasons. The big one is if there is an accident, I'm not liable. If I'm in a subway from point A to point Z, it's great. It's luxury. It's getting me somewhere faster than I could in a taxi or a ride share or walking or riding bike in a big city. But if there is something that happens on that, on, during that transportation, I'm not liable. When we start talking about autonomous vehicles from a personal perspective, and this is something I've, I've discussed with a few peers, there's this gray area that I'm waiting to see what happens with the industry. Because if we go to the, we've seen it in movies, the true autonomous right. vehicle where it is, you get in and it takes you to where you want to go. Who's liable then? Is it the service provider? Is it the manufacturer? Or is it, in, is it the individual who owns the vehicle? And, and that's, that's something I pondered. I, I think it's going to truly require a the insurance industry to evolve. And I think how we as, if you're gonna purchase an autonomous vehicle, you need to know those things. Now, I see that being a bit of a, an issue as well, because if I'm in a truly, the government says, yeah, this is 100% autonomous, it's now regulated, you don't have to have hands on, you can send it back and eat your fries. If there's an accident and it's that vehicle's fault, how am I at fault if I'm not driving? Those are things, and then the tracking and stuff you alluded to there, where, and how do we model from an AI perspective? Let me, from a layman's perspective, when we start talking about modeling processes mm -hmm. uh, for decision-making, typically that's an individual, that's a human doing the first base model, that baseline intelligence, that model that we're going to hand off to a machine. What are the controls in place there to make sure that model's unbiased, the process is unbiased, and also the data collection. Is that something that you see? We've talked about innovation in a prior episode. Do you see a need for us to put a little bit of research into how are we going to secure that model processing mm -hmm. some fail safes? So if we have a, a model that's allowed to self-learn and self-adapt, 
What controls, what boundaries, how do we put guardrails in place for that type of intelligence? Yeah, that's a really important question. And it's, and there's research efforts um, globally, mostly in universities, but in other places too. But it's a certainly a situation where, you know, we see instances even in our intelligent non-machine learning environments and systems where biases of some form or another have been injected into into the process. And certainly there's a lot of research on humans forming opinions, right? And humans forming biases, biases. At their most basic level, biases are a sort of a defense mechanism. Now, obviously we hear about some of the other malicious right. implications of those. But to your point, there is an issue because that algorithm, that machine learning algorithm, was is not organically created, does not necessarily have a conscience in and of itself, does not necessarily have history and context in and of itself until it learns it. But it learns it, in many cases, at least today, based on patterns. It learns it based on things that it can observe, if you will, with a camera or some other kind of optical device. Right. And it requires the contextual parameters to be input by a human being in most cases, at least to start. And so, you know, I suppose it's a natural question that someone would say, who's setting those initial boundaries, right? And what are their intentions? And so having some kind of a guardrail to that system becomes incredibly important. And I think, again, there are a lot of both here at Purdue and in other places, there are people researching how to eliminate or at least control any sort of biases that an artificial intelligence or machine learning environment might have. Yeah. And to add on to that, and most of our products today that have embedded software, as a consumer, typically, you know, whether it's your phone or your vehicle, you acknowledge in the fine print that they're allowed to do software updates mm -hmm. and sometimes continuously depending on the product until they get it right. And this is near and dear to me. That's a product change. It could be transparent. It could be a significant product change. Right. You can do a lot with software. So when we, when you start talking about some of those guardrails and, and safety mechanisms, where's the line? When you talk about some of these live software updates or intelligence updates, you know, how do we manage that internally from a change perspective? And what kind of guardrails do we have there for, you know what, that's a very significant alteration of the behavior of that infield unit, whether yeah. it's a consumer. Well, I think that's a good, that's a good question. Historically, fit and form oftentimes drove. Right engineering change, particularly in the case of product changes, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, I might need to make this wall thickness a little thicker, this whole diameter a little smaller, or something to that effect, right? When electronics came along and we started having electromechanical kinds of products, again, you would, there was usually a change in component. It wasn't until more recently that we started having live software updates. If you wanted to change things, you'd swap out chips or... Yeah electronic modules or what have you, and so on. I still think the concept of engineering change or a change order or a change notice, that sort of stuff, I still think that's going to be a thing, right? We're still going to have that. I think that the difference may come in what is changeable, what is considered to meet the threshold of fit and form and function. 
at the same time. Because to your point, from a mechanical perspective or purely an electrical perspective, I might buy a product where all of the mechanical things and all of the electrical things needed for future enhancements are actually there, right? They come with the product. It's just a question of the software. Have I paid for the upgrade, so to speak, in order to enable now that device, whatever it is, to work the way I want it to work, right? If not, then those physical features stay dormant. And so I think it's really going to cause us to redefine maybe from a process perspective, what's the trigger for something qualifying as an engineering change? When, you're, when you put it in the context of AI and machine learning, where do you see, what do you see the trend over the next, say, 36 months from a technological perspective? Where do you think we're headed? You know, I always define from an IPX perspective, AI, and everyone has their own classifications. There's a few that are accepted. But for us, it's action-based, autonomous-based, and or adaptive. I don't think we're at the Jarvis level of adaptive yet. We've mastered the action-based, the robotics. We're going to program a machine to do tasks. We've got that pretty good. I think autonomous, we're still figuring that out. And I think the definition of autonomous changes depending on your industry. Where do you think we're headed? In 36 months, it's hard to tell. I'm not sure, to be honest, whether we'll be much farther yeah. along the, the automated or even the auto- autonomous spectrum than we are today. Yeah. So you're saying, sus- a lot, you're saying a lot of the fear that in the next three years, machines are going to take over. The likelihood of that's pretty slim. And that's why I said 36 In my months. opinion, yeah. yes, because I think there's no doubt that As manufacturing, modern manufacturing, call it whatever you want, as that improves, there's always going to be, I suspect, some level of automation that might render someone's specific job to no longer be relevant. Is it a global phenomenon? I don't know. I think it depends most likely on where you are on the globe. Right. I think the, what we're probably likely to see are things that, might add more intelligence to edge devices, things that might make faster computation in the cloud. I think we'll continue to see the visual graphical elements of a system continue to combine with the data and computational elements of a system, again, to better enhance a user experience, to make things, whatever it is, more usable. I think we'll continue to see environments where certain functionalities are app based the continued modularity of software systems again towards that app like platform i think again my opinion is that the there's going to need to be some research work done on software engineering yeah on it, personal computing in the sense that we've not had these major leaps in in everything from miniaturization to personal computing to the software hardware interface. We've not had major leaps in a little while. And I'm sure we will at some point, probably rather soon, but I think until some of those leaps in miniaturization and computing speed and the like, until those come to fruition, and I'm, I don't know that we'll see drastic improvements in 
the more generalized AI, right? Yeah. The stuff that you see in movies and entertainment, right? Oh, I, yeah. I think it's definitely going to remain, uh, well, maybe not definitely. That's probably too strong of a word. It's likely to remain action-based until we see more of the development in that software-hardware interaction space. And I agree. And that's, I figured we'd be like-minded on that. And from my perspective, personally, I had a opportunity to attend a few NHRA races over the 2022 uh, season. And I was able to spend some time with Mike Salinas and the team scrappers and really look at that operation and how they use data and how they have machines that can monitor the weather and tell them exactly how the car should be configured and exactly how he should drive that vehicle at that time. It's up to the second they're on the track, they're rapid data. And I see the, a huge value in on the healthcare side and being able to really fine tune our personal care. My hope is in the future, we get to the point where with a prick of the finger at home, we can monitor where we're at. And if there's any anomalies with public database goes, while you're trending towards potentially some early onset cancer or heart risk, you know, right. I, I see that being a huge benefit and it's something I look forward to. And then to talk about the job replacement, you know, I'm seeing it. You go into over, I would say last 14 months has probably really ushered in with the pandemic. A lot of your grocery stores, your hardware stores, the, the self checkout used to be just one or two aisles. Now it's rapidly expanding to almost you, it, they're all self checkout. Right. You know, and I see that. And then in some of our heavy industrial client base. A lot of robotics and machine moving in the warehouse. Yeah. We've got a lot of that. I don't see that going away. But the one thing I think individuals and our listeners need to understand is that's not cheap. AI, machine learning, that's not a cheap investment. And the ROI isn't always there right. initially. And even now, with the state of the technology today, there's maintenance that has to get performed Absolutely. on that. And I don't mean like changing the oil kind of maintenance. I mean software updates, yes. possible code rewrites, continuing to make it modular so that it can more efficiently learn. Those are the things I think that when people take on a project like that, that I don't want to say they don't think about it, but I have a feeling it gets underestimated. The yep. amount of effort, time, cost, whatever metric you want that it's going that it's going to take in order to do it yeah and it's one thing that from our education sector we talk about bim right building infrastructure management and facility layout and we work with organizations on the service side on when they're conceptualizing the manufacturing the facility floor of the future and they're thinking about we want to use this robot that robot we also have to remind them once once you lay it out with that mindset it's a little more difficult to change that site. There's a new investment on we've built the layout of this facility to allow for these types of automations, this intelligence, right. this machine, this robot to move freely. If we want to change a line, there's a little bit more we need to think about. Oh, yeah. And from a maintenance perspective, from a software and just from a, a layout change and a site change, there's a lot there. So I do think we've got to, as we discuss machine learning and artificial intelligence and where it's going to be applied, we can't forget and the time associated with making these mm -hmm. changes. I, they don't happen quick, which is what you discussed just a few minutes ago. 36 months, that's, there's not a lot of potential true 
adaptive intelligence that we're going to see. We're not going to see robots going to the grocery store for us in every house. Which you know, is is there going to be improvements in data acquisition? Sure. Is there going to be improvements in in visualization systems or optics? Sure. I think the what takes longer is that systems level integration yeah. of all of those things to come together in just the right way in order to get at that more adaptive kind of environment. What do you, from an education side of the house, where do you see the AI capability being a, an opportunity for capability improvement or process improvement? That's, a, that's an interesting question because one of the challenges we have, I think, in an education environment is people want... And I think you could say this, whether it's a formal learning environment even, or whether it's an informal setting, is that sometimes people want to apply what we've learned in a production environment about efficiency and about efficiency measures and apply that to education. Now, I don't mean like K-12 education or university education. I just mean generally, generally people want to try to apply that to education. I think it's important to understand that learning Human learning, I don't mean machine learning, human learning, is often a very inefficient process. We can rapidly acquire things into memory. We can, even our senses, right, can rapidly feed us information. But comparatively speaking and figuratively speaking, it takes us longer to knowledge, to make a memory of whatever stimulus just came through. And part of learning something is making a memory, whether that's mentally or maybe it's physical muscle memory. Maybe it's a combination of both of those things. And so the element of time is important when it comes to learning. Time, in some ways, especially the more of it you have or the more of it you need, is often the antithesis of efficiency. Yeah. And so I think one of the the real opportunities, but also one of the possible challenges is that because learning takes place on a very individual basis and the time scale is not the same for everyone, I do think machine learning or AI has an opportunity to maybe help us fill in some of those differences. For example, if you've got a classroom full of students You're going to have some who learn really fast and they seem to comprehend the material really quickly, even to the point where they can apply it, right? Others who they understand it, but they have a challenge of applying it. And there's some who don't even understand it. The difference between those two ends of that continuum can sometimes be large. And as instructors or as teachers, one of the real challenges you have just from an operational perspective is the larger the number of people you have in your learning environment, the more likely you are to see some substantial spread between those who really get it and know how to apply it and those who don't. Right. And what often happens is you just practically and operationally speaking, you spend inordinate amounts of time on these people who don't necessarily get it, trying to get them up to a point where they at least understand it. And then often what that ends up meaning 
is that the students who do understand it and those who understand it and can apply it often don't get their skills, their knowledge nurtured in a way that some of these others do. And so where I think of the one of the real opportunities is this on-demand support, this on-demand help, if you will. For as long as we've been using PCs or using computers, there's always been this concept of a help file. What have we noticed, even in in things as routine, so to speak, as our everyday office tools. They offer us help. Yeah. Sometimes we turn that off because we don't like it. It annoys us. Yeah. But for those people who are learning something, on-demand help, meaning help and support, again, cognitive or, cognitive or otherwise, when I need it, not before I'm ready to process it, and certainly not after the opportunity in which to process it has already passed, but I want it just in time, yeah. so to speak. Well, and you also want it to be functional. Like some of my headaches of the help capability and systems is you spend more time trying to actually get it dialed into what you need help with. Mm-hmm. And I do think, you know, with what we've seen with OpenAI and their chat capability, you now have a more practical human-like help capability. So yeah, absolutely. I've tested it out a few times and quite surprised by the ability for it to actually help. I use it to help my son with some homework for the times that I'm not there. Because typically, like you said, if you're struggling with the concept, your help is doing the research first, right? Yeah. So I'm trying to train myself on a concept I don't actually understand that was taught. To me. Um, you know, breaking it down to an eighth grader's math, having that help. AI assisted, you know, and right. from a machine learning perspective, it's got all the data points, but actually able to communicate with the human, the open AI functionality with their chat, chat, what, GPT or whatever it's called. Yeah. It's, it is quite impactful. So I do see what you're saying. I hadn't considered it from that until I, I thought I've actually used it in that manner. And it was actually helpful. And then I think is where, again, we're not talking about automating jobs away per se. I'm talking about is creating this more, again, a more systemic, a more assistive kind of an environment where human workers, whatever, whoever that happens to be, can get that support that they need. But we're also talking about, I think, more formalized learning environments too, where, you know, again, there's usually one teacher to go around maybe two if you're lucky, or maybe a support person if you're lucky. Though Those folks often cannot help enough of those students at once. And so using machine learning as an augment to that teacher's capability could be really useful. You know, and I think if you apply that same approach on the industrial side, when you start talking about your line worker, we have what the standard work, work construction, mm-hmm. typically those have been document-centric in the past. Any lessons learned has been almost a the passed down the tribal mm-hmm. knowledge, so to speak. I do think there's opportunity to invest in that type of capability. Where, and we talked about it in a previous episode where our consumers are also providing us data on our products. If we have and we apply this to that kind of machine learning from a data perspective, we could have some on-the-job, real-time, assistant-level AI capability. Oh, yeah. And I think that, to me, is we already got some augmented reality, you know, and some of our clients' more advanced manufacturing and even on the service side. But I think having a live, almost assistant for types of issues, that could be powerful. And that can help in a number of ways, right? Again, a lot of the manufacturing companies that I talk with here, 
they're having trouble finding people. You could give your existing employees, your ongoing employees, support, right? Or once you do find someone to hire, how do you get them up to speed? How do we normally do that today? There might be some kind of a training program or onboarding program, but it's usually go find the person who has been here the longest right. and have them teach you. Yeah. Sometimes that's not particularly efficient. Sometimes it's not particularly good either. And so in my so, experience, it's normally both. Right? Yeah. Right. And so I think one of those things that it could do is help in a situation like that. It can also help, I think, in a situation where compliance is important, mm -hmm. regulatory or otherwise, where you may be audited at some point, right? And, mm -hmm. and one of the shortcomings that human beings often have is when they're doing a task and they've more or less mastered how to do the task. Well, now it isn't about the novelty, if you will, of learning for the attention system is gone. Yep. Now it's more about, oh, this is something I just have to do. I already step. know how to do it. People often use the phrase, oh, I could do it in my sleep. You probably shouldn't. And when you have this, any kind of a situation where there's like an auditing or a compliance requirement, machine learning can, again, or even AI could be used in a situation like that to help make sure that whatever the activity is that the person does, it remains in compliance. Yeah. And I think but to tie it into our previous episode about assessments, there's also the ability to use some of that assessment data and some of the learning modules to create a virtual training assistant for mm -hmm. onboarding. Yeah. And, and honestly, offboarding as well. And when we have attrition and the retirement class of individuals, there's knowledge there. And that's a lot of what, from an IPX that we specialize in, it's knowledge management. You know, and when we think about AI and how it relates to the future of knowledge management, I think we're just on the honest, the infancy of that. Yeah. Um, but I would agree. I think for our audience, for our listeners, as we close out this episode, just to clarify, we're not stating that the future of AI doesn't have some potential pitfalls or dangers. We're not saying that we need to not keep those on the horizon. We understand we're talking about now and understanding and make sure as our audience and as like-minded individuals, we're looking at ways to not only utilize these capabilities, but also provide the right guardrails. And for me, it's the guardrails are very important because you don't want to be too restrictive, but if you just open it up, that's when you run in security issues. But Nate, another great conversation, another great podcast. Thanks for joining us. For our listeners, stay tuned. We have a, a few more great sessions or episodes coming up with Dr. Hartman. But for this episode, thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Looking forward to it again. Thank you, Nate.